You're listening to Civic from the San Francisco Public Press. On this edition, we'll mark Veterans Day by hearing about local efforts to address veteran homelessness, barriers to accessing services, and employment. We've reduced the number of homeless veterans on the street dramatically, 35% in the last year, perhaps 50% since 2012 or 2013. Uh, And we've done it by using federal dollars because, you know, the local government is really strapped for cash. Federal government has really cut back dramatically on in terms of the social system and the safety net. I'm Laura Wenis, and this is Civic. Civic is underwritten in part by the San Francisco Foundation, which has been acting as a catalyst for change to build strong communities, foster civic leadership, and promote philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1948. More at sff.org. Despite the pandemic shutting down most in-person gatherings and services, staff and volunteers with the Veterans Services Group Swords to Plowshares are still on the ground. In the streets and in drop-in centers, they've continued to offer support with housing, employment, mental health, and food for local vets. I talked with Executive Director Michael Blacker about some successes they've had and the obstacles that veterans face when it comes to getting help. So Swords to Plowshares has its 24th annual Veterans Day dinner, and it's going to be online, like everything is. And I'm hoping you could start by reflecting a bit on where your organization is at and how veterans are doing in San Francisco at this moment when we're more than half a year into a pandemic-induced lockdown. You know, we're heading into winter. We've also just gotten the results of a presidential election. A lot is happening. What's the status of Swords to Plowshares and of veterans in San Francisco, broadly speaking? Well, broadly speaking, you know, we're a community-based vets organization and we've really pride ourselves in helping vets in greatest need. So clearly that means helping vets uh, avoid poverty or if they fall into poverty, help them with their housing and their health needs and getting work and counseling, et cetera. So those vets, have they have suffered and continue to suffer. We see a lot of vets who are also older and they have sort of these advanced uh chronic health conditions, i.e. diabetes or neuropathy or pulmonary issues, mm-hmm. uh, which again, just just creates more difficulty for their ability to, you know, engage and live and enjoy their lives. So it's been a rough adjustment, so to speak. But um, we have done some things unique from the standpoint of creating housing. And we we maintain housing for about just over 400 vets in our in San Francisco. But uh, recently with the pandemic, what we've done is we've been able to access funding from the VA, you know, through the CARES process, that CARES funding that came came about and some of the funding Mm -hmm. went to the VA. And so the VA has turned around and allowed us to, you know, increase emergency housing. So what we've done in San Francisco is we've approached landlords of hotels and said, you know, we would like to place veterans in your hotel room and we have federal dollars to pay the rent. So we've gotten veterans to stay, make 28-day stays in these hotels. We've been able to house nearly 200 vets in hotel rooms. Wow. Now, this is not permanent. This is not a permanent situation, obviously. It can't continue beyond, in our case, beyond next uh, June. But in the meantime, we can work for the, to, to get that population of 200 veterans, 150 in San Francisco, maybe 50 in Oakland, and to find permanent housing and try to use HUD subsidies or use whatever we can we can get to get uh, to subsidize the rent because 
you know, renters clearly in San Francisco are struggling to pay to afford to pay the rent and not pay, you know, 67, 70% of their income for their rent. Right. That's a big challenge. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, San Francisco is always talking about homelessness and how to end it. And on the show, we were just talking yesterday about approaches to addressing homelessness that actually work. And researchers say focusing on getting them into housing first is key. I mean, and also veteran homelessness is persistent nationwide. And obviously it's one of the areas that you are specializing in. When when you're talking about, you know, 400 veterans that you house regularly and then 200 more that you've gotten into at least temporary housing in this pandemic, um, what, how big is the need? I mean, how does that 600 people seems like a lot of people. How does that compare to how many people need that help? Well, that's a good question, right? Because every county is, you know, doesn't have the resources to address all their homeless folks. You know, they do these point in time counts, I think, in January. And of course, you know, the numbers have gone up the last couple of years in the Bay Area, especially in Oakland, I think. Uh, But, you know, you have numbers 6,000, 7,000. I think there's 7,500 perhaps in San Francisco. I think there's at least 6,500 in Oakland. Well, that's a lot of homeless individuals. There's not funding for providing rental subsidies to find places for them, right? I mean, the amount of money... Do we know, sorry to interrupt, but do we know what proportion of people who are experiencing homelessness in San Francisco or in the Bay Area are veterans? Sure. It's it's probably a third of the single adults. Wow. And uh, But of course, there's an increasing number of families and women. And uh, Mm. I mean, it used to be 45% of single adults were veterans, right? Back in the late 80s. I mean, veterans, there was something like 300,000 homeless vets in nationwide. Mm-hmm. So that number has diminished. Maybe it's, you know, I, I would say in San Francisco, maybe it's more like 25%. of. Again, we're talking about singles and we're talking about adult male. Yeah. I mean, has that improved? It, it sounds like, you know, through work, like the kinds of works that the kinds of work that sorts of plowshares has done. I mean, that you've really shifted the focus or you've really worked hard to get those numbers um, down or, or the, the numbers of people that you help to such proportions as they are now. Yeah. I think, I think clearly we've reduced, we've moved the needle, right? Yeah. So we've reduced the number of homeless veterans on the street dramatically, 35% in the last year, perhaps 50% since, you know, 2012 or 2013. Uh, and we've done it by using federal dollars because, you know, the local, government is really strapped for cash, right? To Mm. continue to address health needs and take care of uh, governing, you know, there's not a lot extra dough there. And the federal government has really cut back dramatically on, in terms of the social system and, you know, the, you know, the, uh, the, the safety net, if you want, if you, you know, want to speak about that issue, the safety net. So HUD has cut back dramatically, but for veterans, they've gotten some increased, rental vouchers, and we've been able to compete and bring them into the community. So that's been a big deal for the local areas that are strapped for cash to have federal rental subsidies to take their citizens who are homeless off the street. So I think in that way, we've done, we've been a major, I think a major uh, contributor to the reduction of homelessness. Yeah, it really sounds that way. And I'm glad you bring up federal dollars because I'm curious sort of what the sticking point was um, because you've made a big dent, it sounds like. Is there anything besides just bringing in the money that really seemed to make the difference to get people off the street? Well, I mean, you know, you do as good a job as you can. You got to work it. You know, what housing is out there. You got to, you know, work with the landlords or work with, uh, you know, the community, work with your partners and collaborators, work closely with the VA to make sure that, 
the veterans that we help have access to health care, right? Because that's a big, that's also a, a complement and important part of housing once you get folks off the street. Using mm-hmm. the housing first, that doesn't mean all the issues go away. So, you right. you know, you provide support, good care, you know, with this pandemic, right? We've been trying to exercise, you know, being informed by the health department to make sure that we do it as safe as we can. But I think a lot of it is, I mean, the magic bullet really is rental subsidies. And so, so yeah. often uh, it, and that's the case. I mean, if folks had rental subsidies, right, they wouldn't have to pay so much of their income uh, toward the rent, those who are renters. And there's a lot of renters in the state of California and in the Bay Area. Uh, it really is the magic bullet. And, and we just the feds have not uh, addressed that, you know, mm. Do you see that changing with the change in administration that we're anticipating now? I certainly hope so. I know I know uh, the folks who will be in charge of HUD will be different. I know they're going to approach it differently. Um, but, you know, at the end of the day, there has to be enough income and revenue. And that's where, you know, that's where your, you know, tax base, your revenue source, uh, you know, the, the actual meat and potatoes of governing, you know, and a lot of folks aren't don't dig that deep and don't really sort of comprehend what that means, but it does come down to taxation. It comes down to using, you know, resources uh, and, and, and trying to help the help society, the public. I mentioned that the veterans day dinner that's coming up is going to be virtual and, you know, so many organizations have moved all of their operations to working from home. But from right. what I see from sorts to plowshares, you still have people going out into the city, into the streets, working with people one-on-one, you know, taking safety measures, obviously. But I'm curious if you could share a bit about what staff have seen on the ground, what the need is, how people are doing, um, what's going on when you when you go and check out what's happening during a pandemic? Well, you know, you can't you have to be there. You can't do it remotely. Right. you got to yep. be there. you got to take the vet. you got to take them into the hotel. you got to make sure that they get their rooms squared away. We make sure they have uh, meals. We give them a gift card. We give them a cell phone if they have, need access to, uh, you know, to uh, storage. We make sure they get that. We check in. Uh, with them for uh, health wellness checks. You know, that's all part of it. You just can't give someone a room key and then, uh, you know, you got to stay in touch with them and connected with them. So those are, we have, there are essential workers, right? They cover these shifts. They go out there, they meet and greet and take the vets in. Uh, They make sure they're, they get into VA care. The VA is doing a lot of telemedicine. So we make sure they have a iPad to, you know, to take care of the telemedicine. Right. Um, Right. You know, it's if we need to be going to the hospital, we try to get them there. Uh, but we sort of certainly can't do it alone. I mean, that's where the whole community is involved. So you have the Department of Public Health, you have, you know, the Human Services Department. You, you know, you do whatever you can. You work with your fellow community-based organizations. You work very closely with the VA, and the VA is a key here, right? Providing mm-hmm. healthcare. Um, so our, you know, we're we're not hiding. We're out there on the street, and we have to be. And what we've done, we've been fortunate because we secured one of these payroll protection plans, and that's enabled us to increase our salaries and incentive, mm. incentivize and also pay transportation. Uh, that's a little thing, but that helps out, folks. Yeah. Um, you know, those kind of ways to make sure they have equipment and the masks and we're doing all the right things health-wise. But, you know, I mean, I think SWORDS, in, in essence, is an essential organization because we're out there doing that kind of work. And, you know, we have drop-in programs as well, both in uh, San Francisco and Oakland, 
So we're doing a lot of trying to mental health counseling. There's so much stress out there, right? Mm. Um, unknowns and, uh, you know, counseling that's needed just to break through isolation and, you know, make sure folks are connected. So, you know, we, uh, we're just trying our best. And sometimes it's like a laboratory. Well, this is working. Let's try this again, right? <laughs> uh, you know, that's what do. Uh, what's really helped really is having the funding from the VA. And they, they really put money into the idea of getting vets off the street with this shelter in place. Yeah. And that's they've gotten that money from CARES, right? That was the big the big funding, the whatever it was. I think it was uh I'm not sure what the amount of money was, but it was needed and of course it's needed again, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I, I'm wondering if you could talk a little bit more about how to address isolation because that seems to be sort of the almost universal byproduct of sheltering in place is if you're alone and then you just have to stay isolated alone by yourself inside what do you do what do you yeah, offer what do you to do? people what do you do well you know at our current housing you know that it, it's uh, we have single room occupancy hotels we're also on the presidio and we have housing on treasure island etc you know we try to engage people food is a good way to engage folks uh we mm. try to engage them with uh you know, community events. We just had, you know, we're going to do a Thanksgiving Day event. We had a, uh, we're doing a Veterans Day event. You know, we had Halloween. You know, we had these little, we do these little efforts, you know, to connect folks. Um, you do whatever you can, you know. I mean, a lot of people are doing it virtually, you know, and trying to encourage people to connect up. Uh, you know, we're, we're trying to learn whatever's out there. We're trying to some take some of the best ideas and trying to put that in place. But you're right. I mean, isolation is very, is brutal, especially for veterans who've been, or those who are low income or homeless who've been on the street. I mean, gee, I mean, you're in isolation when there's no pandemic, right? right. And now there's pandemic and everybody's sort of in the same boat here. And so we're just trying to figure it out. But I think things like reaching out, I think, you know, meals, wellness checks, checking in, trying to be there for folks, plugging them in, you know, we can, we're starting to do groups where we bring people in in a safe way and, We've like rearranged our offices, our drop-in offices, so we can accommodate folks. A lot of people who are struggling find that they have tons of these hurdles to jump through in order to get the services that they need. But especially so, it seems like for veterans, there's veterans who are entitled to benefits by law, but they find these sort of artificial barriers raised or confusing bureaucratic standards for accessing services. I'd like to talk in uh, in particular about discharge status. Right. Could you explain for people who aren't familiar what that is and what kinds of status someone can have? Yes, well, you know, uh, when you serve in the military and you uh, provide service and then you're separated from the military, you receive, you, you receive a discharge document and you also receive a discharge status. And that can be anywhere if there are five types of discharge. And, uh, most folks are familiar with an honorable discharge, but there's also uh, a discharge called general under honorable conditions. And there's three other types of discharges that are not at that level. And a, a general discharge and an honorable discharge affords you the full benefits package, health care, uh, the GI Bill, et cetera. Although a general discharge, you cannot get the GI Bill. But if you have an other than honorable, it's a, it's a discharge that's administratively given. So typically people do not have, you know, the right to an attorney. It's not there's not been a big amount of due process, uh, oftentimes for minor military offenses. Offenses that could be mean you're you're late for uh, you miss formations, 
you're absent without leave, um, you're, there's a slight discipline problem, and suddenly you're kicked out of the service with this other honorable discharge. And then there's also a dishonorable and a bad conduct discharge. This typically is where you're court-martialed, you're provided an attorney, there's a provision of kind of military justice that is uh, available to you. But it's this category of other than honorable administrative discharges that's particularly punishing for folks because they're denied, with that discharge, they're denied health care from the VA. With that discharge, they're denied benefits. They get no GI Bill, but especially health care because oftentimes veterans have, there's reasons why they ran into this these military issues or these just military justice issues. A lot of it's due to stress. A lot of it's due to, especially the, the, the tra- trauma that uh, mm. it comes from, you know, serving the military or being preparing for war or being in war. And so often uh, a veteran who has this traumatic stress will have trouble uh, adjusting to the military. And there'll be oftentimes just for convenience purposes, the military will kick them out and they'll have bad paper. And then they're really on their own. I'm speaking with Michael Blecker, executive director of Swords to Plowshares in San Francisco. So as a result of what happened to them in the military or what they experienced in the military, they are then handed these papers that deny them services, which they should have been able to get because they served in the military. That's right. And it seems it haunts them for the rest of their lives. I mean, yeah. especially in the Vietnam War, we had, you know, something like 500,000 veterans that had other than honorable discharges. That's a lot of folks. And they were denied and they were like really pushed pushed back and pushed under and not even addressed at all. And they were denied health care and they were denied the whole range of benefits. And that really contributed to their isolation. It affected their ability to adjust. It affected, uh, and quite frankly, I think it led to issues around homelessness as the mm-hmm. years passed. Mm-hmm. And there was a time when in the 80s, I think half those homeless veterans served during the Vietnam War. And in San Francisco, barely 13% of the population served in the military, but yet they were 40% of the homeless population. Wow, that is a disparity. Yeah, there's, there's you know, just a jaw-dropping uh, statistics. Yeah. And there's also, you know, it's very difficult to get uh, information from the military, especially mm-hmm. if it's negative in any way, shape, or form. Um, you know, there are issues around uh, active duty soldiers who had food insecurity issues, uh, i.e. their families were on Social Security and food stamps, even mm-hmm. though they were serving, even though they're in the military, even though they had family. And mm-hmm. it was really difficult to get the, the military to acknowledge that as a problem and give us specific uh, information as to how many of these soldiers have, quote, food, their families suffer food insecurity issues. So you have to dig, you have to file Freedom of Information Acts, you have to like pull it out. Recently, there was a study that showed racial disparities in the way military justice is handed out from the standpoint of who gets disciplined in the military, who gets denied promotion in the military. And they were showing some really remarkable disparities, especially around the Marine Corps, where uh, it was you're likely three times more likely to be found guilty at a court martial or to receive non-judicial punishment. You know, it's just, you know. It's Sorry, really, who was three times more likely than whom to be found guilty? Soldiers of color, black uh-huh. GIs, uh, yeah. Latino GIs. 
And, and who and found this information if this it's not called, coming from the military? This is a study called, uh, it was called Protect Our Defenders. Wow. And it was a study, it was, and like I said, it's very difficult to get this information. It was released in May of 2017. And, uh, you know, it just, the start, it's not really sur- uh, surprising to those of us who know how, how military justice works. That, but black service members were substantially more likely than white service members to face military justice or disciplinary action. And uh, you said this came out in 2017. Yes. And what has been done since then? Well, not a lot. <laughs> Let me put it that way. I mean, there are issues around how military sexual trauma in the mil- in the service, and how you know, you know, there's just so much. Of, yeah basic justice that's not meted out in the military. And so that carries forward when you're, when you're, when you're separated. Yeah. I was going to ask also about um, sexual trauma because as I understand it, that's one of the things that has in the past or, or can lead to these other than honorable discharges. And I also wanted to ask about a, a number from the veterans healthcare policy Institute, which is that the number of bad paper discharges has grown since 1980, an estimated 575,000 veterans have received under the, other than honorable or punitive discharge. I think you mentioned that. And then post 9-11 veterans have received nearly five times the number of bad paper discharges than World War II veterans. I mean, what's changing here? What happened? Well, I think, you know, what happens when you're in the military, you know, command culture, uh, you know, is, uh, you know, Covers everything. That's that's the priority, right? It's uh, and so if you're not responding as a soldier, there's not much room for you. You get kicked out. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they did they did studies that shows like something like sixty percent of those who were separated bad paper complained of stress uh, were actually treated for stress, and yet their way of dealing with it was to kick those folks out. No. So we know that's going on, and we have the numbers to prove that. Another aspect here that I want to bring up is that more than 100,000 veterans have been discharged with bad papers because of their LGBTQ status. Is that something that you deal with a lot in San Francisco? How How is Swords to Plowshares addressing it? Well, we're trying to address it through, I mean, there was, you know, during the Clinton administration, there was the don't ask, don't tell issue, right? Mm-hmm. So there's a lot of folks who were, who received, uh, you know, discrimination on that basis. And they were pressured, uh, you know, they were sort of stressed, they were sort of forced out. And they were, you know, unfairly disciplined on the basis of their sexual orientation. We know that as a fact and there are numbers to back it up. And so that's a population that has suffered as a result. There's a piece in the Bay Area Reporter about a man named Carl Tabell who finally received word nearly 70 years after he was, you know, kicked out of the military for being gay that he was granted an honorable discharge from the U.S. Navy. I mean, first of all, oh my gosh, nearly 70 years. And, and second, can you do that? Can you change your discharge status and how? Yes, you can. I mean, uh, we actually, but it provide, you know, it, it requires a lot of uh, careful legal advocacy to do that. And that's why SWORDS is always, uh, since we started, we always had what we call a discharge upgrade project, where one can have their military records reviewed before these discharge review boards in the military. And that decision can then be appealed if you're denied through the correction of military records. 
but it's a very lengthy process. You know, it takes years sometimes to get that review. But if you can show that it was, you know, basically it was uh, inequitable, unfair, it was uh, like in, in these cases, it was a matter of uh, the military failed to use their own regulations properly, but typically it's a fairness issue as well. But it takes just a tremendous amount of determination and you need a skilled attorney to advocate for it. Yeah. And what do you do in those years that it might take for for your discharge status to change and, and in the time where it sounds like you can be denied benefits? That's right. You can be denied benefits. In fact, we've actually sued the military because too often we sued the VA, I'm sorry, because too often the VA has the uh, they're, you know, empowered and they're uh, able to change discharge for purposes of awarding benefits like health care. But too often they will not they will not review a military uh, categorization. They will just like rubber stamp it. And yet mm-hmm. they have uh, they have the means and the right and the responsibility to consider a character service. And we were determined to sort of like, what are the rules around it? And there needs to be guidance because the VA rarely does that. And yet they can do it. So that's part of taking legal action. That's part of, we actually filed a, a rulemaking petition and it took the VA something like five years to respond to us. Wow. Because that's part of due process where a veterans claimants have certain timetables of when they have to file a claim. The VA is not subject to any timetables on when they can when they should respond. So you can wait around for these lengthy periods of time before the VA will respond to your claim or to your, in our case, to the rulemaking petition. Yeah. I want to end on a slightly different topic. I want to talk a little bit about jobs um, because that's always a topic that comes up when we talk about veterans and, you know, something that's that's always front of mind. Um, I got this statistic just recently from the U.S. Census Bureau that employment among the nation's 3 million post-9-11 veterans was higher from 2014 to 2018 than it was among those who never served in the armed forces. And that's actually in contrast with some older veterans group. I'm curious what you've seen in terms of job availability and employment among the veterans that you serve. Well, again, sorts of plowshares tends not to serve, uh, you know, those who have been in officers, for instance, or those who've been in military schools or those who have been career soldiers. We tend to serve those who have been in the service one or two enlistments, right? Three years mm. or six years or something. That's, that's who we serve. Sort of the, uh, the rank and file of, the, of, of a soldier or an airman or a sailor. And mm-hmm. uh, in our case, you know, we're not seeing those numbers that high or the, maybe the quality of the jobs, maybe they have employment, but the quality of the jobs maybe don't have provide benefits and don't pay adequately to live in the Bay Area, for instance. So I'm not sure what, how, what those numbers are revealing. I think you really have to look at what are the quality of those jobs. Do they have health benefits? Do those jobs pay decently? That kind of stuff. I think you have to look closer, I believe. Yeah. And uh, what, is, what are some of the th- areas that you're working on in making sure that veterans in San Francisco are able to get those good, well-paying jobs? Well, that's been a tremendous struggle for us. We have a job program and we're trying to get folks trained. And I mean, uh, you know, too often, I mean, it's really difficult to break through for good jobs, right? Yeah. Uh, the tech industry, that kind of stuff. I mean, you have to have the vocational uh you know, you have to have the you have the vocational capability to sort of like succeed in those. But it's a very uh, it's a very accelerated kind of uh, situation. 
try to go to school and break through and get a degree in computer engineering to, which is, you know, the entryway into some of the better paying jobs. So it's, it's a struggle. Yeah, absolutely. Well, Michael, thank you for taking the time to talk with me. Is, are there any final thoughts that you want to leave listeners with um, as it is Veterans Day and, you know, we're thinking about this? Yeah, no, I, I appreciate uh, I appreciate having an opportunity for, to, uh, to talk about the issues a little bit. I will say that uh, if you go on our website, you can join our virtual Veterans Day dinner free of charge. Uh, and we would, you know, welcome your support. Great. Thank you so much for your time. That was Michael Blacker, Executive Director of Swords to Plowshares. I'm Laura Wenis, and you've been listening to Civic. Civic is a production of the San Francisco Public Press. Host and reporter, Laura Wenis. Producer and contributor, Mel Baker. Our theme music is by John Dillon. Additional themes from the Blue Dot Sessions. Civic airs Monday through Friday at 8 a.m. and 6 p.m. on KSFP LP. San Francisco, 102.5 FM. Thanks for listening. Civic is underwritten in part by the San Francisco Foundation, which has been acting as a catalyst for change to build strong communities, foster civic leadership, and promote philanthropy in the San Francisco Bay Area since 1948. More at sff.org.